0: CHAPTERS SEVEN AND EIGHT OF THE GIRL FROM MALTA BY FERGUS HUME. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. SEVEN. THE END OF THE VOYAGE. THERE IS NO sadder word in the English language than farewell. HOW MANY QUIVERING LIPS HAVE SAID IT WITH BREAKING HEARTS AND SCALDING TEARS, THE SOLDIER MARCHING AWAY WITH FLYING BANNERS AND martial MUSIC. THE IMMIGRANT SITTING ON DECK, SEEING THE BLUE HILLS OF THE LAND OF HIS BIRTH FADING AWAY IN THE SHADOWS OF THE NIGHT, THE YOUNG MAN GOING FORTH INTO THE WORLD, AND TURNING ONCE MORE TO SEE THROUGH TEAR-DIMMED EYES THE OLD HOUSE WHERE HE WAS BORN, AND THE LOVERS PARTING, NEVER TO MEET AGAIN. YES, IT IS A SAD WORD, AND HAS CAUSED MORE TEARS AND HEARTACHES THAN ANY WE USE. NOW THAT THE VOYAGE WAS COMING TO AN END, Those who had been in close companionship for nearly six weeks knew that they must separate in a short time, and that the memory of the pleasant company on board the Neptune would soon be only a dream of the past. No wonder, then, that as the steamer glided up the Thames every one was a little melancholy. The voyage from Gibraltar had been pleasant. They had seen the famous Trafalgar Bay, where Nelson won his Waterloo, past Cape St. Vincent in the night got a glimpse of the mouth of the Tagus in the early morning, and steamed safely through the Bay of Biscay, which did not act up the reputation gained for it by the song, but was as calm as a mill pond. On arriving at Plymouth, some of the passengers had gone to London by rail in preference to facing the chance of a collision in the English Channel. It was Ronald's first glimpse of England, and Chester, who was very patriotic, asked him what he thought of it. "'It's the best-groomed country I've seen,' said Ronald with a smile." And indeed, though the epithet was odd, it was very appropriate, for after all the barbaric colouring they had seen at Colombo, the arid rocks of Malta and Gibraltar, and the sandy shore of Port Said, this wonderfully, vividly green land, with fields and well kept hedges cultivated down to the water's edge, looked, as the Australian said, well groomed. They anchored for about two hours at Plymouth, but there was no time to go on shore, so they gazed longingly at the quaint town so famous in English history. The Hoe THE BOWLING GREEN WHERE SIR FRANCIS DRAKE PLAYED BOWLS WHEN THE ARMADA WAS DESCRIBED, STRETCHING OUT LIKE A CRESCENT, AND MOUNT Edgecombe, WHICH THE COMMANDER OF THE GREAT FLEET DESIGNED FOR HIS RESIDENCE WHEN ENGLAND WAS CONQUERED. RONALD STOOD SILENT, LOOKING AT ALL THIS BEAUTY WHEN A REMARK OF PAT'S MADE HIM LAUGH. I SAY, SAID PAT, MINDFUL OF COLUMBO AND AIDEN TO CHESTER, WHO WAS QUITE INFLATED WITH PATRIOTIC PRIDE, WILL THE PEOPLE HERE COME OFF AND DIVE FOR PENNIES? Chester glared at him viciously, and then stalked away too indignant to speak, while all around roared at the queerness of the remark. "'Well, I thought they might,' explained Pat to his grinning auditors. "'The natives did it all the other places.' "'There are no natives here, confound you,' said Chester, who had returned. "'Oh, indeed,' replied Pat innocently. "'This England's inhabited by foreigners.' After this Chester concluded to leave Pat alone." It was night when they sailed up the channel, and they could see in the distance the twinkling lights of Folkestone, Dover, Margate, and all the other well-known places, and, as it was the last night on board, there was a general jubilation in the smoking-room after the ladies had retired. Songs were sung, toasts were proposed, speeches were made, and when the electric light was put out, candles were produced, and the concert kept up far into the night, or rather morning. One gentleman said he could play musical glasses, and broke fifteen tumblers in demonstrating his ability to do so. Then they had more liquor, sang God Save the Queen, and went off to bed one by one, and everything was quiet. And what a curious appearance the deck presented next morning, everyone in his best, no more flannel suits and straw hats, but accurate frock coats and tall hats, while the ladies came out in dresses of the newest fashions. Knots of people were talking together. "'giving addresses, making appointments, "'and promising to write, "'until it was queer to hear the jargon like this. "'You won't forget. "'The Alhambra, you know. "'Best shop in London. "'Lace veils, cheaper than. "'Address will always find me. "'Piccadilly Circus on. "'Cheap hotel. "'Just off. "'Margate's the jolliest. "'Oh, the devil take the... "'Nicest girl you ever. "'Set foot on shore.' and so on until Ronald, who stood by Carmela, could not help laughing. The Marchese was looking after his own things, and as Ronald had his luggage in perfect order, he had Carmella all to himself. "'So this is the Thames,' he said, looking down at the dull leaden stream flowing between the dingy banks. "'The Thames of commerce, not of poetry,' she corrected, smiling. "'You must come down to Marlow and see the real river.' "'May I?' "'He asked eagerly, thinking he detected an invitation in her tones. "'Of course you may,' she answered carelessly. "'I don't control your movements.' "'Not at present, but you might,' he replied hurriedly. "'There was an awkward pause, luckily broken by Pat, "'who came rushing along with his usual impetuosity. "'Ah, Miss Cottener, and is that you?' said Pat dolefully. "'The best of friends must part, and we may never meet again.' "'We might.' "'answered Carmella with a laugh. "'The world is small.' "'Begad, I wish me heart was,' said Ryan sadly. "'It's large enough to hold all the girls on board, "'you included.' "'Much obliged,' retorted the young lady with a bow, "'not in the least offended, for Pat was a licensed jester. "'But I'll not consent to be one of many.' "'You'd rather have one honest heart,' asked Pat, "'looking keenly at her.' "'She turned his remark off with a laugh. "'Depends upon the owner of the heart,' she replied gaily. "'Ah, begad, then I'm out of it,' said Pat and ran off, leaving them in exactly the same awkward situation as he had found them. "'What are you going to do when you reach London?' asked Carmella, after a pause, during which Ronald kept his eyes on her face. "'Many things,' he answered calmly. "'First I am going to set to work to find out who killed my friend Venton.' "'I'm sure I hope you will be successful,' she replied heartily. "'But why in London? "'The crime was committed at Malta.' "'Yes, but the motive for the crime "'will, I think, be found in London.' "'They say a woman killed him.' "'I think so, but it is purely theoretical.' "'I dare say, for what motive "'could any woman have for such a crime?' "'Do you think a woman always requires a motive?' "'She looked at him in surprise. "'Certainly I do. "'There can be no cause without an effect.' "'In some cases, yes.' he replied gravely. In this case, I believe the woman had no motive in committing the crime. Then why did she do it? asked Carmella, looking at him. That is what I have to find out, he answered, and so the conversation ended. It was one o'clock when the steamer got into St. Catherine's docks, and on the shore crowds of people were waiting to meet their friends. No one, however, came to meet Pat and Ronald, so their mutual sense of loneliness drew them yet closer together. ''Where are you going to stop?'' asked Pat, linking his arm in that of the Australian. ''The Tavistock,'' replied Ronald. ''The Australian cricketers generally stop there, so it will feel home-like.'' ''I'll go there, too,'' said Ryan promptly. ''We'll go to the Alhambra or the Empire tonight, and tomorrow call it the Langham.'' ''To see whom?'' ''Oh, a lot of passengers are going to stop there. Miss Lester among the number?'' said Pat, with a slight blush. "'Oh, Pat, your heart is lost there,' observed Ronald, smiling. "'And what about your own and the girl from Malta?' asked Pat, whereat Master Ronald also blushed, and the two friends went below to get their stewards to look after their luggage. Among those who had come on board was a tall, elderly gentleman, very straight and severe-looking, scrupulously dressed, with gold-rimmed spectacles, accompanied by a pretty vivacious-looking brunette who was clinging to his arm. "'I don't see her, Bell. "'said the gentleman, looking inquiringly round. "'Perhaps she's below, Papa,' said the young lady. "'Oh!' with a little scream. "'There she is! "'There she is! "'Carmella! "'Carmella!' "'And with another ejaculation she ran forward "'to where Miss Cottoner was standing talking to Vasella. "'My dear Bell," said Carmella, kissing her, "'how good of you to come and meet me! "'How do you do, Sir Mark?' "'And she gave her hand to the elderly gentleman "'who now advanced.' "'I am pleased to see you looking so well, my dear Carmella, he said in cold, measured tones, and then turned an inquiring glance on Vassella. "'My cousin,' said Carmella, introducing him. "'This is his first visit to England.' Sir Mark and the Marchese both bowed and murmured something indistinctly. "'We are stopping at the Langham, Carmella, said Bell, brightly looking up in Miss Cottener's face. "'Papa doesn't like our townhouse, you know, and we're going to stay a fortnight in town.' Isn't it jolly? Bell, reproved her father, do not use slang, I beg of you. I can't help it, said the vivacious Bell. It was born with me, and Oh, my! with another little scream, What a good looking boy! Who is he? The quartet turned their heads and saw Ronald, looking handsome and high bred in his frock coat and tall hat, advancing, evidently with the idea of saying good bye. It's Mister Monteith said Carmella, paling a little at the thought that she might not see him again. You are going away? she asked aloud, holding out her hand. Yes, he answered gravely. Mr. Ryan is with me, and I am going to explore the wilds of London. Let me introduce you, said Carmella, despite the black looks of Vasella. Sir Mark Trevor, Mr. Monteith, Miss Trevor, Mr. Monteith. The Australian bowed in his usual grave manner, and then he said good-bye to Carmella. "'I shall see you, I presume, in London?' he said, lingering a little. "'If you like to call at the Langham Hotel, I shall be there for a fortnight,' she answered, and his face lit up with a happy smile as he went off. "'Why did you do that, Carmella asked the Marchese in a vexed tone. "'We don't want to see him in London.' "'You may not. I do.' "'replied Miss Cotterner with calm contempt. "'Shall we go on shore now, Sir Mark?' "'And without another word she went off with the baronet and his daughter, "'leaving him alone. "'So he has not given up the chase yet,' muttered Vassella as he looked after the luggage. "'Well, we shall see. We shall see.' "'Mrs. Pellipop, to her disgust, found no one to meet her.' So went off to the Langham Hotel and wrote a severe letter to the bishop, which had the effect of bringing the prelate up to London the next day. And so they all went their different ways, and the happy family on board the Neptune was scattered abroad through the streets of London town. Ronald saw the captain before he left and had a talk with him about Venton's death, promising to look up his barrister friend on the morrow. Then he went with Pat to the Tavistock, where they had a capital little dinner, after which they patronized the Alhambra, followed by a supper at the Cavour. Then, though Pat was inclined to make a wet night of it, particularly as they had met several of the boys at the theatre, Ronald went to his hotel and retired soberly to bed, first, however, posting his letter of introduction to Gerald Foster of Middle Temple, so that he could call on him on the morrow and speak with him about the mysterious death of his friend. I'll find out who killed poor Venton, he said as he went to bed, and then I'll marry Carmella. 8. COUNSEL'S OPINION Everything comes to those who know how to wait. What an excellent proverb for a briefless barrister! Let Mr. Briefless sit in his chambers, surrounded by his law-books, crammed with learning and ready to undertake anything. If he wait, will fame come to him? Not she! Fame is a lazy goddess except when she flies away, and then it is difficult for even the most industrious to catch her and clip her wings. He who would seek the wealth of the Indies must take out the wealth of the Indies. Is not that saying a true one? In order to gain fame, riches, and ease must not one bring industry, perseverance, and knowledge? If Mr. Gerald Foster, barrister of the Inner Temple, had adopted the motto of knowing how to wait, he might have done so till the end of the chapter and then have been no better off at the end than the beginning. But Mr. Foster was not of this fatalistic creed. He did not believe that what must be, must, and that if a man is to be famous he will be so whether he idles at home or goes out into the world and works. No, he saw clearly that every day the prizes were fewer and the multitude of competitors greater, and so he did not rest idly on his oars after being admitted to the bar, but went in for hard study, both of men and books. Books, as he knew, are all very well, but, according to Pope, the proper study of mankind is man, and Gerald went out into the world and neglected no opportunity of getting fish into his net. He went into the theatrical world, and knew all the most famous actors and actresses in London; he went into the political world, and had all the burning questions of the day at the end of his tongue; he noted the rising and falling of shares on the stock exchange, and knew exactly how the money market stood; and he went into society and became acquainted with the follies of the hour. All this work was for a purpose, for he was a young gentleman who never lost an opportunity, and his sprats were all sent forth to catch mackerel. As yet, in spite of his assiduity to work, and his cultivation of the follies and virtues of his fellow men, he had succeeded but little, but then he was only twenty-eight years of age, and fortune is not a goddess to be wooed roughly, so he went on, keeping his brain cool his eyes open, and his mind cultivated, and had no doubt in his own mind that he would succeed. With such indomitable perseverance Gerald knew he must win at last. Fortune, fickle though she be, becomes weary of incessant assaults, and yields in the end to the persevering suitor. So Mr. Gerald Foster, aged twenty-eight with clever brains, good health, and plenty of tact, worked assiduously at his profession, waiting for the hour that would bring him fame and riches not a handsome man certainly not that is he was not an oiled and curled darling of society he dressed well because it was part of his business but even his kindest friend could not have pronounced him handsome a bald head with a thick fringe of brown hair round it a prominent nose a clean-shaven face with a thin-lipped mouth and two brilliantly black eyes under bushy eyebrows he would have been ugly but for the wonderful charm of his smile A most delightful smile that changed all his features and turned him from the ugly beast into the handsome young prince of the fairy tale. And, above all, his face was one that inspired confidence, an invaluable quality in a lawyer. On the morning after the arrival of the Neptune he sat in his office in the temple looking over his letters. Accurately dressed, in frock-coat, black trousers and tie, and spotless linen, he was turning over his letters when he came on that of Ronald's and something in the handwriting of Mr. Monteith Sr. seemed to strike him, for he opened it first. Reading it over carefully, he gave vent to a low whistle of astonishment. "'Hum,' said Mr. Foster, surveying the letter thoughtfully. "'Friend of your father's—only son—first visit to England. Would like you to look after him—exactly.' Laying down the letter— A cub, I expect, with no looks and less manners, brought up in the wilds, and can't eat his food properly-a delightful aboriginal to introduce into London society-Well, I suppose I must-I love my dear old father too well to think of refusing to do a good turn to any friend of his-Confound it-I'm sure this son is awful-Well, perhaps he'll be rich, and that will cover a multitude of sins-We are fond of whited sepulchres nowadays; He put the letter of introduction on one side and proceeded with the rest of his correspondence, carefully answering each letter and putting it neatly away. Then he rang for his clerk and giving him a pile of letters told him to post them, and taking up the daily telegraph, proceeded to read that paper and wait for clients. Of course he went first for the money market. Then he looked over the political news, glanced at the law reports, and read all the leaders ending with the theatres. These principal items being finished, he glanced idly over the paper and at last came on something that interested him. "Hm," said Mr. Foster thoughtfully, a murder committed on board the Neptune. That is the boat the cub came home in. Think I'll read it, that I may have something to talk about when he does come. He read the article carefully which told all about Venton's murder, and the suspicions entertained by Monteith after which he laid the paper down and, rising from his seat, walked slowly up and down the room with his hands behind his back. "'Don't think the cub can be so bad after all,' he said musingly. "'Indeed. Judging from his evidence, he seems rather a clever fellow. "'Queer case, and one I'd like to have a hand in. "'To unravel a mystery like that would make a fellow's fortune.' BUT THESE THINGS DON'T COME MY WAY, CONFOUND IT. HERE HE WAS INTERRUPTED BY A KNOCK AT THE DOOR, AND HIS CLERK, A RED-HEADED BOY WITH A LARGE APPETITE AND FEARFUL DISLIKE FOR WORK, ENTERED WITH THE CARD HELD IN HIS GRIMY FINGERS. GENTLEM waitin', SIR, SAID THE RED-HEADED YOUTH, WHO BREATHED HARD IN AN APOPLECTIC MANNER. RONALD Monteith," READ FOSTER ON THE CARD. HUM, THE CUB. SHOW HIM IN, BURKLES. Burkles grinned, vanished, and shortly afterwards threw open the door and announced, Mr. Ronald Monteith. If ever Gerald Foster got a shock in his life, it was seeing the cub of his fancy transformed into the handsome young man of reality. There he stood at the door, hat in hand, tall and noble-looking, quite a distinct being from the ordinary lounger of Regent Street and Hyde Park. Accustomed to rapid observation, Foster took the whole of that stalwart figure and honest countenance in at a glance and, with the sudden liking of instinct, advanced towards him with outstretched hand. "'Mr. Monteith, I believe,' he said as Ronald stepped into the room. "'Yes,' answered Ronald, grasping the proffered hand, and what an honest grip was that of the young Australian. "'I sent my letter of introduction to you last night.' "'It is here,' replied Foster, pointing to the table as Ronald took his seat. "'I am very glad to see you, Mr. Monteith. My father was a great friend of your father's.' "'Let us hope the friendship will be hereditary.' "'It is very kind of you to say so,' said Monteith, in some surprise. "'I am quite a stranger to you.' "'You are,' answered the young lawyer, "'but I am a student of Lavater, and I can read faces. Therefore, I say, I hope we shall be friends.' "'I am certain we shall,' said Ronald, heartily holding out his hand, which the other grasped again. "'You had a pleasant voyage?' asked Foster, in a conversational manner. Very, except for one incident, which I know all about, pointing to the newspaper. I'm glad of that, because I have just called to see you about it. Eh? said Foster, sitting up in his chair. By Jove, hope you'll put the case in my way. I was just thinking before you came in what a splendid chance this was to make a name if one only had the case. Well, Mr. Foster, said Ronald, slowly, looking keenly at him. "'I am very much interested in the case. Benton was an intimate friend of mine, and as no one that I can hear of is going to try and clear up the mystery of his death, I am going to take that duty on my own shoulders.' "'I see,' observed Foster, nodding sagely. "'And you want help?' "'I do. Your help.' "'You shall have it,' cried Foster impulsively. "'A subtle case like this is what I require to make my name.' At present I am a briefless barrister, but give me the chance and I'm all right. Archimedes wanted a world whereon to rest his lever and move the earth. I am like the Greek. I have the lever. Videlicet my brains. Now I want a world, namely, a case. This, as far as I can gather from the papers, will be an excellent chance. Then you shall have it, said Ronald heartily, and I am only too glad to think I have such an enthusiastic worker.' "'So be it. Now tell me the story in your own way. These newspaper accounts are so meagre. Whereupon Ronald told Foster all about the case and his own suspicions regarding it, to all of which the young barrister listened carefully, then leaned back in his chair and put the tips of his fingers together. "'Hum,' he said thoughtfully, looking up at the ceiling, "'you have made out a very strong case against this small tease wife, I must confess.' "'But the evidence is surely circumstantial. "'But who else would have done it? "'A man might have committed the crime. "'But with what motive?' "'Because he was told to do so.' "'But I don't see—' "'Of course you don't,' said Foster coolly. "'But I will explain. "'From what you have told me, Mrs. Venton, "'we will call her so as we do not know her real name, "'must have been a woman of very strong passions.' Now, is it likely that such a woman would remain faithful to her husband? No, I am sure she would not. Depend upon it, she had lovers or else married again. In the latter case, she might have committed the crime herself, as husbands are not fond of endangering their necks for wives, however pretty. But if she had lovers, depend upon it, one of them committed the murder for her sake. That's all very well, said Ronald impatiently. We must not be content with vague speculations, but get a clue. Now, how are we to start? I think the idea of Captain Templeton is best, said Foster thoughtfully, to look up the divorce case. You do not remember it? Not I. There are dozens of divorce cases every year. We are such a moral nation, you know. I can't keep them all in my head, but I will look it up. And then? Then I will see the solicitors who had the case in hand, and ask all about Venton. You knew the man, they knew him, and if your descriptions tally we will soon establish his identity.' "'So far so good,' said Ronald impatiently. "'But what follows?' "'Then we must find out where this Maltese wife is.' "'In Malta,' said Ronald abruptly. "'She might not be by the time we find out her husband's real name,' said the barrister coolly. "'Don't hurry, my dear boy.' "'But when we discover where she is, "'we must set a detective on her "'to find out her movements on that night "'when the murder was committed. "'If she can account for them satisfactorily, "'your theory must fall to the ground. "'But if she can't—' "'Foster shrugged his shoulders. "'Then we must be guided by circumstances. "'We can hardly arrest a woman on the existing evidence. "'It's a very difficult case, and we must be careful. "'When will you look up this divorce case?' TODAY, AND LET YOU KNOW ALL ABOUT IT TOMORROW. MEANWHILE, YOU HAD BETTER COME AND LUNCH AT MY CLUB. THANK YOU VERY MUCH, SAID RONALD, BLUSHING. IF YOU WILL LET ME AWAY IMMEDIATELY AFTERWARDS, I HAVE TO MAKE A CALL. CERTAINLY, REPLIED FOSTER, GLANCING AT HIS COMPANIONS' TELL-TALE FACE AS THEY WENT OUT. I'LL BET HE'S GOING TO SEE A WOMAN, HE THOUGHT, LOOKING AT MONTEITH. WHAT A TRANSPARENTLY HONEST MAN HE IS. END OF chapter SEVEN AND EIGHT